Do you know, I think sometimes churches feel like that. Yes, we're all equal. Of course we're all equal. Yeah, we're all we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Everyone's equal. But we don't feel that sometimes. Because reality is that some people get treated differently to others. And sometimes we're made to think that these gifts, the people who have these gifts, are somehow more valuable than the people who have these gifts. That is a terrible thing. And it leads to the people, some people feeling rubbish because they, well, I haven't got the gifts. I've just got something over here. We've got to be really careful of that. I think our particular danger as a church, and I've said this before, but I want to keep saying it, our particular danger is that we think that preaching or teaching is somehow the best gift. It's not. And if we begin to slip into thinking, well, the people who can preach are the ones who really matter the most, we're slipping into us animal farm. We've got to kill that by what Paul says in Roman, in Philippians 3. So here we go. There's the, there's the categories. That's, that's why I think some of us feel like we're rubbish Christians. And Paul is writing to these Philippians because they're in danger of feeling rubbish. They're his precious gospel partners. Back in chapter 1, he says, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He really loves these guys. They're his partners in the gospel. They've given him money. They've helped him. They're so good. And yet he's angry. Do you see he's angry? Look down with me at verse 2. This is an angry verse. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. That's pretty graphic. Paul Paul is very angry because there's a group who've come into the church in Philippi and they're making the Philippians feel rubbish. They're saying to them, well, you're sort of second class Christians. He talks about these guys as Dogs. He doesn't mean like cute, fluffy little dogs. Oh, they're the dogs. It's nice. No, I mean like wild, vicious, nasty dogs who do huge damage. And so Paul is writing to these Philippians to tell them, you need to know who you are. That's the first big point we're going to see. You've got to know who you are. That's verse 3. He says, watch out for those dogs, watch out for those mutilators of the flesh, watch out for those who will come and suggest to you that you're nothing special. Look at verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision. Know who you are. Now, I appreciate at first, point, at first sight, to be told that you're the circumcision is not all that. <laughs> you know, when we were thinking of names for the Globe Church... Uh, it wasn't, it never actually even crossed my mind. The true church of the circumcision. <laughs> it, it wasn't really a kind of... And yet, and yet when Paul writes this, he's not being rude to them. In fact, he is saying something of such profound significance that if, if we could understand this, it would blow our minds what he's saying here. He is saying to them, it is we, Philippians, you, Philippians, we, me, you, you, Philippians, we are the circumcision. Now, you've got to understand, the Philippian church was a Gentile church, not Jewish. And circumcision was the mark, the distinguishing mark of God's special people. The Jewish nation. Israel. 
So circumcision was what marked out God's people. And now Paul looks at the Philippians and he says, it's we who are the circumcision. This is what he's saying. He's saying, Philippians, you have to know who you are. You are the inheritors of all of God's promises to Israel. So look, let's, let's go back. He went right, right back to Abraham, okay, the kind of father of Israel. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham, I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a great nation. I will bless you. You'll be blessed. And whoever, all nations will be blessed through you. A massive promise to Abraham. And then Abraham receives the sign of circumcision, which marks Abraham and his family and all that will follow from him as God's special people. And it'd be easy for us to sit here this afternoon and read that and go, that's really nice. That's a promise to some bloke back in history. Whereas Paul says, no, that's us. Know who you are. That promise to Abraham, that is exactly the promise that you now belong to. We're the circumcision. And so when God brought his people Israel out of slavery through the Red Sea, brought them to Mount Sinai, and he said to them, you will be for me a treasured possession. We sit and go, yeah, but that doesn't mean us. Yes, it does. Because we're the circumcision. So to be called the circumcision means you belong to God's special people. There was no other distinguishing mark. That's it. You're either in or you're out. And you're in. So you're the circumcision and not only that, we are... um, It's we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit. You've got to know who you are. It's we who serve God by his spirit. Okay, let's do do it again. Who, Who were the first to receive the spirit? When the spirit of God was poured out, he was first poured out on the Jewish nation. And so the Jews would say, no, we're the spirit filled ones. We're the ones who God's given his spirit to. We're the special ones. And Paul's like, read on in Acts. Read Acts chapter 10 where God's Spirit is poured out on all of God's people. It's we who serve by the Spirit of God. And can I say, isn't it still true today that the Spirit of God is often the means by which many people are made to feel inferior as Christians? I remember when I was a teenager going on a camp. And uh, at this camp, it was a huge, hundreds and hundreds of teenagers Uh, all in this big hall, and we were all singing. And then the man at the front said, the Holy Spirit, he's coming, he's coming now. And everybody fell over, all around me. Except for me. I was the only one standing. And as a teenager, I was like, "What's, what's going on? And I went out from that hall, and I went and sat in the middle of a field. It was raining. And I sat in the middle of a field, and I said to God, why won't you do that for me? Why won't you do it for me? I felt so rubbish. That is not the gospel. Because the gospel says that all who trust Christ are those who serve by the Spirit. All who trust Christ have received the Spirit. Know who you are. Don't you dare feel inferior because other people talk of these wonderful experiences they've had of God's Spirit. You are not inferior. It's we who serve by the Spirit. Know who you are. Now the Holy Spirit of God is a precious gift and he does give wonderful gifts and he's wonderful to experience. But don't you feel inferior because you've not had some experience or whatever. 
You're not second class. It's we who are the circumcision. We who serve by the Spirit. It's we who boast in Christ. It's we who put no confidence in the flesh. It's we who have Christ as our glory. Know who you are. But it may be that some of us, we're sitting here going, okay, well, that's all very nice. But I'm still not sure that's me. Is the second thing Paul wants you to know. You've got to know who you are, but you've got to know how you are who you are. You've got to know how it is that you came to be who you are. How did you end up being the circumcision? How did you end up being those who serve by the Spirit? How did you end up being those who boast in Christ? How did that happen? And Paul now turns to his own story in order to explain it to us. And he says that before he met Christ, how he was who he was was entirely based on his own performance. It was based on what he did. So have a look, and it's pretty impressive. Verse 4, that I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now I get that at this point you may, it may sound very much like Paul is being boastful. Could I just tell you a few of my credentials? But Paul is simply telling the truth. This is, who I, this is who I was. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I'm people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to law of Pharisee, in regard to zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on law, faultless. I've got it all. How Paul was who he was, was based on his performance. Based on his pedigree, based on his family, based on his line, based on everything that he'd done. That is righteousness based on the law. But something's changed. And I'm going to, I want you to look very closely. He says the same thing three times in verses 7 and 8. Have a look at this. Follow this through with me, okay? Try and stick with this. We're going to just look at these words because this is the heart of the passage. How are you who you are? Look at verse 7. Whatever were gains to me, that's this stuff here, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Got it? Those are the three bits. Whatever were gains, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Then he says it again, verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ for whose sake I've lost all things. See? Same thing again. And then he says it again. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Right, here's the point, okay? Here's the point. Paul has discovered something that he says is of such supreme value that he will give up all of this in order to take hold of this. Jesus told a parable once about this, um, about a man who found treasure in a field. He was out digging in the fields like you do, and he found some treasure. Ah, treasure. And he was excited about the treasure because it was treasure, and that's exciting. So he buried the treasure in the field and he went off, kind of, went back, all his stuff over here, all the possessions he had, his big fat screen, everything, right, all of it, he sold all of it. Everything. And his friends and neighbours must have been going, what's he going, he's mad, he's completely mad, what are you doing? This must be really hard to give up all this stuff. But he knows that there's something And so he gives up all of this in order to take something, hold of something which is of supreme value. And that's been Paul's experience. All this that was so precious to him now is 
nothing compared to this. You see, there is something about over here. There's something about self-righteousness that feels nice, isn't there? Yes? I, I remember once um, I was... Don't take, don't, I, I was once on a diet, okay? I don't know why. And uh, I remember being in an elders meeting, not at this church, <laughs> previous church. And I had this weird sense of joy as the cake was offered to me. And I said, no, thank you. And then watched everybody else eat. Yeah, there was something smug. It feel, is that just me? Don't, doesn't it feel good? You know, perhaps you go out for a run or something and you feel good about how smug you are. Or you, you, know, you do something. You, runners always look smug, don't they? It's so irritating. You just want to trip them up. <laughs> but they, so there's, that's, that's self-righteousness. That's, that's that. It feels good because it kind of puffs you up. Look, look what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. So this does feel good. And for Paul, he's got it all. And yet, he's given all of that up. Because he's found something better. What is it he's found? Okay, listen to it again. This is what he's found. Knowing Christ, being found in Christ, gaining Christ. What he's found is Christ Jesus. And Jesus is of such great value to him that he would give up all of that in order to gain Christ, be found in Christ, know Christ. And then we might say, well, why? Why is that so much better than that? Well, then we get to verse... Nine, and we discover what it is that makes Christ of supreme value. Paul talks about being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that was over here, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, over here, what I have discovered is a righteousness that comes from God. Over here, it's a righteousness I have to do myself. Over here, it's a gift that comes from God. But what is righteousness? You see, your confidence as a Christian, your understanding of what it means to be a Christian, depends on how you understand righteousness. For righteousness is a declaration that God makes. Righteousness is a status that God gives you. Where he says to you, you are right. Where God looks on you and says, I am pleased with you. That's righteousness. You're not guilty, you're righteous. But the trouble is, there is no one righteous. Because of all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous. So how are you going to get righteousness? Well, you could try really hard, but there's no one righteous. You're never going to achieve it on your own. But then Christ comes, and God gives us righteousness. But let me just push this, okay? um, Try and stick with this, I know it's warm, but let me push this a little bit harder. Because I think there's a problem with our view of righteousness. we We think it's a bit small. If you've been around church at all for very long... We can sort of take it a bit for granted, and it goes a bit. Like, it becomes a sort of transaction in our head, where God says, "You know, God, oh yes, here we go. What does it mean? God put my sin pop on Jesus, Jesus' righteousness pop on me. Bing, I'm righteous. 
We've got to be really careful of that. As if it's some kind of abstract thing that God does somewhere out there. Listen to Paul's language again. I want to gain Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to be found in Christ. For Paul, righteousness does not mean some abstract thing out there. It means being found in Christ. It means being joined to Jesus. So let me try and paint righteousness for you in a slightly different way, using a story that Jesus told that many of you will know. I'm going to try and tell the story in a slightly different way and show you some stuff in the story that is different to, I think, what we often emphasize. It's a story of the father who had two sons, right? Prodigal son. And the youngest son takes the father's money, runs off to the far country, and has a wild time, woohoo, party, party, and then loses all his money, ends up feeding pigs. Okay, pigs, if you're Jewish, a pig is unclean. If you're in a pigsty, touching pigs around pigs with pig filth, you are very, very unclean. You are not righteous. You're dirty. And so here he is, dirty, filthy, in the pigsty. And then he makes this, in fact, can you turn to it? Just turn to it in Luke 15. See the, see the exact thing the son says. Luke 15, page 1049. So in verse 16 of Luke 15, here's the boy in, longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Look what happens in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Here's his plan. He says, Father, I want to come back. Is there any chance? Look, I know I can't be a son again. Listen to him. I'd like a second class place in your home. I know I can't, I know I can't ever be your son again because I've blown it. But could I even just be a servant? Let me just be a servant. Please let me be a servant. That's what he's hoping for. That's the best that his thinking can manage when it comes to righteousness. So he's trudging home, practicing his little speech. Here's the father, this side, and the father's looking, 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 waiting for his son, hoping his son will come home. He sees a speck in the horizon. Is it him? Yes, it's him. But he looks such a mess. What is wrong with him? And, and he starts running down the road to meet his son. Running, running, running. Here comes the son. The son's coming this way, covered in pig filth, stinking, stinking, stinking. And he sees his father running towards him, thinking, man, I'm in trouble. He's properly angry. He's running to me. He's expecting his father just to reject him completely because of the way he's treated his father. And as they approach, that moment as they approach, what happens when they meet? What happens? Does the father say to the son, son, you stink? You're unclean. Could you go and have a? Could you go and have a shower? Could you go and have a wash? Get yourself cleaned up, and then we could talk. Of course, he doesn't. As the father sees the son, the father throws his arms around the son. Now think: if the son is covered with pig filth, what happens to the father in the story? He becomes unclean. In order to welcome the son home, the father has to become unclean. And here's the son trying to get out his little speech. I'm not worthy to be one of your sons. Please, could I be a son? It's like, shut up, shut up. Let me just hug you. And in that moment, 
in the story, the father in the story becomes unclean as he welcomes the filthy son home. Who is the father in the story? Who is it that welcomes sinners like that? This is Jesus. This is what Jesus came into the world to do. Jesus came into the world to embrace, to throw his arms around filthy people and to take that uncleanness himself. Righteousness is found in Christ when his arms are wrapped around you. And do you know what happens next in the story? The father then goes to get the best robe, puts it on his son, puts the, puts the ring on his finger, and he says, my son is home. The son was hoping he might be allowed to be a servant. But the father won't allow it. Because there are no second class people. You're a son. And this is why Jesus had to go to a cross to die. Because of the filth of my sin. He went to pay that for me. In order to give me the robe of a son. He's clothed you as his precious daughter or his precious son. You're his child. And so righteousness is not some abstract thing out there. It is the declaration, the status that God says, you are my child. I am pleased with you. You are right. So back in Philippians, I hope you're sticking with this. Back in Philippians, this is how you are who you are. You are who you are, not because of your great performance. All the son did was come home. You are who you are because of Christ, because he welcomed you. Therefore, there are no rubbish Christians. There are only righteous Christians. That's the only sort of Christian that exists. If you are not righteous, you are not a Christian. If you are not trusting Christ, you're not a rubbish, you're not a Christian and you need to trust him now. But if you would say, yeah, I am, I, I, I find it really hard, but I know that I'm trying to trust Christ. I, I, I know that. Well, hear this assurance. You are righteous. You're not rubbish. I'm getting clear on that status. So for those who struggle with past failure, Christ died for your past failure. It's forgiven. It's forgiven. You have to believe him. So many Christians are haunted by this past sin that hangs over them that says, you're rubbish, you're rubbish, you're rubbish. And Jesus comes to silence that voice and to say, I paid it. You're not guilty anymore. You're, you're forgiven. And the son, you can imagine him a few days later in the house, kind of feeling really down and guilty. And the father coming and saying, no, I've forgiven you. It's gone. Your past failure is forgiven, Christian. Trust him. And for those who perhaps feel just a little bit less valuable than others, you're his child. Christ died for you. You're righteous in him. And then, well, we need to finish, but then in the very last couple of verses, um, here's Paul's third thing. You need to know why you are, how you are, who you are. Which made me happy. <laughs> Why has God done this? Well, look at verse 10. I want to know Christ. 
He has to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. God has made you his child through Christ. God has declared you righteous through Christ so that you might be united with Christ, so that you might experience the power of his resurrection. Yes, so that you might suffer with him. And when suffering comes, that you might not think, I'm a rubbish Christian, but so that you might suffer confident of who you are in Christ. And that as you suffer, you may suffer with the sure hope of resurrection ahead, of a life with him forever. This is why you are who you are, how you are. I think that was the wrong way around. You know, every other religion works the other way around. Every other religion says, do good stuff, join in the thing, and then you can be part of the club. This is the other way around. Christ has made you who you are. Now live for him. Now live the life. Live in his power. Live and suffer with him. Live and die with him and live and rise with him. This is why you are how you are, who you are. So this afternoon, Globe Church, I would love us to be confident. Confident of who we are in Christ. Stop describing yourself as a rubbish Christian. And look at Christ. Of course, if we spend our time over here, we will describe ourselves as rubbish. Because my righteousness is rubbish. But that's when every time I think I'm a rubbish Christian, I'm a rubbish Christian, I need to lift my eyes and say, yes, but he is a treasure of a saviour. And my confidence is there. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for righteousness. Thank you that righteousness is from you. Lord, we are not righteous on our own. But Father, thank you that in Jesus you came running to meet us. Thank you that in Jesus we find a welcome that embraces us in our unrighteousness, in our filth, and then robes us as your children. Thank you that we wear robes, clothes of righteousness now. And Father, we ask that you'd help us not to see ourselves as second class in any way but to recognize who we are and how we came to be who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.